All right, everyone, uh, go ahead and grab a seat. We're going to get started with our time of teaching. And uh, before we start, I uh, wanted to read our, our text of scripture, and then I'll pray. And uh, something that's just been hitting me lately, coming back into the series on the Sermon on the Mount, is just to rally that this is Jesus's teaching, which means it should be sacred to us if we're followers of Jesus. Like, we should listen with, like, wide open ears. Like, I want to receive. And so as I read, I want to take a second um, to, I want you to get comfortable enough to listen, okay? So take a second. If it would close your eyes to help you, if you want to slow down your breathing and focus, but whatever would help you get present to what God might want to do in your life in this moment, I want to encourage you to do that. So phones away. Just get present. This is the teaching of Jesus. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of life. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's pray. Father, uh, these words are, to our ears, probably challenging, probably also a little confusing. God, would you help us uh, not just understand these words, but, but learn to embody these words. Learn to live in the freedom that's promised here. God, I pray that we would increasingly know what it means to live for the only master who we should live for, and that's Jesus. That's the king of the universe. He's the only master who is for us. He's the only God who is for us. Other gods, when we worship them, they take from us. And the God of money is no different. And so, Lord, would we experience the life-giving generosity of God that can lead us into lives of simplicity and joy and contentment. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you guys are new, my name is Andy, I'm one of the pastors here at Restored, and we're in a series called About That Life, and it's a series uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' teaching on how disciples should live. Disciple just means follower, so how Jesus told his original followers, this is how you should live, and he's had a lot of teaching about life and about what we value and see that's very countercultural to the world we live in today, but what you need to know is, is that the, the culture he originally spoke these words into would have found his words no less countercultural. And we've seen that every week. Uh, his teaching on anger, his teaching on lust, his teaching on divorce, his, his teaching on living for the approval of others or the approval of God. And we can go on and on and on. He is transforming the worldview of the people that he would have been talking to. And though we have a different worldview than they had, it's still very different to the worldview of Jesus. 
And so in every time and space and place and nation and century, everywhere that, that the gospel goes and Jesus is proclaimed and his teaching is taught, it is countercultural to that culture. There's no culture where it fits in perfectly. It's a kingdom culture or a heavenly culture. And today it's no different. We're going to talk about money and material things. In America, we don't know much about money. We don't know much about materialism, right? We don't know much about consumerism, right? So it probably is going to feel like, I'm just kidding. We are the kings and queens of this. Um, uh, billions in the world struggle to make a living. And we have, we, we have things like retirement, which is a funny idea to the majority of the, the majority of the people that have ever lived, not just today, but in the history of the world. Things like health insurance. And by the way, I'm not even saying you shouldn't have some of that stuff. I'm just saying we live with way more excess than Jesus' original hearers ever could have dreamed of. And so what do these words mean to us? Um, uh, as I was thinking about this message, uh, one of the things I was thinking about is Christmas. It was only a month ago. I know it's New Year's, Maria. Uh, it was only, Christmas was only a month ago. And Christmas is the time when historically the church would, celebrates the, the coming of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, the advent of the new era. But in America, we have turned Christmas into a celebration of materialism. Um, uh, again, you see Christmas celebrated all over the world by our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia and the Middle East and Latin America, but they celebrate in a very different way. It's not that there's no gifts given or gifts are forbidden. They're just nowhere near the point. In America, uh, corporations have gotten in on kind of taking something holy and turning it into an avenue for profit, uh, so much so that the day after Thanksgiving is called what? Black Friday, when retailers go from the red to the black, uh, when they go from maybe we should shut down this operation to we're going to make a profit again this year. And so without Christmas spending, a ton of stores would go under. In 2021, I don't know if, you, I don't know if they have last year's data yet, but two years ago, Americans spent $886.7 billion at Christmas. $886 billion at Christmas. And you know what? They went out and bought groceries, right? And deodorant. Right? No, 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 no one bought that, right? No one's buying necessities. They're all buying things that they just want. Now, my point this morning isn't a bash on how Americans celebrate Christmas. Again, I'll, I'll tuck those insights away for our Advent series in December later this year. But what I want to highlight is, is how often we spend so much on things we just want, they're not needs, they are wants. And, and by the way, this happens all the time, right, with kids at Christmas. They obsess over a toy. They see it on TV. 2023, I guess they see it on YouTube now. I don't know. Like they find their candy and their toy ideas on YouTube, right? And they go, man, I have to have this toy. I have to have it. I have to have it. Mom, do you think I got Dad, do you think I can have it? Grandma, do you think I can have it? I have to have this toy. And then every once in a while, depending on the household, the family, the means, all that stuff, they get the toy. And, uh, and we give our kids, man, we give our kids a lot of presents. We actually told the grandparents, Jackie's grandpa's, or Jackie's dad, <laughs> uh, our kids' granddad's here. Uh, we actually, we're like, hey, don't give too many toys to the kids. They have enough stuff. Um, but they get a lot of stuff. But, but, but sometimes they get the, the exact thing that they were hoping for. And then it's like two hours later, it's like, ah, I don't know. There's nothing worse than when a parent hears a child say early Christmas evening, I have nothing to do, I'm bored. <laughs> or way worse, I have nothing to play with. 
okay? So, um, like, if you, you know, put up some cheddar to get some toys, it's, it's sad, right? Now, uh, as kind of silly as kids can be with their attention spans, the maturity levels and all that stuff, are we really that different? How often do we believe the lie, if I just had X, I would be happy? And then X just doesn't really do it. And X for you might be a different, there's all, there, that, the placeholder of X can be filled with a ton of different objects or things or, you know, houses or cars or clothes or trips or um, whatever it is. I don't know if you guys saw uh, uh, just about this meme uh, and it kind of showed like what, what boomers would spend like an extra $10,000 on if they just like fell into their lap. And it was like really fancy couches. And then for millennials, it was like trips. Um, either way, we change what's in that placeholder. But the human heart goes, if I could just buy something, it would give me what I want. And so we purchase things not usually for their functionality, but for what they say about us and what they think they will do for us. Uh, James Bryan Smith uh, writes about this passage. He says, the false narrative that drives our materialism goes something like this. Blank. He says, insert a dollar amount or a material possession will make me feel secure, powerful, successful, and happy. He continues, notice several things are promised here. Security, power, success, and happiness. He says, you may object. Come on, Jim. The toilet paper I brought last week had nothing to do with security or power or happiness. He says, maybe not. The staples of life, socks, milk, shampoo, we may not be affected. I mean, socks have been impacted by this. Let's be honest. Uh, there's a whole sock culture. Uh, it was like sneakerheads and sock guys. Um, but on the other hand, this is what he says. On the other hand, what toilet paper did you buy? At what store? At what price? And what shampoo did you choose? The one that is the ad that shows men flocking to see the shiny, bouncy, beautiful hair of the woman who uses the brand. And did you buy the deodorant whose ad features a man being mauled by beautiful women because he uses that deodorant? It's kind of a throwback to X body spray, I think. It says, many of us don't buy things for sheer survival because of the promise they bring to us. We, we buy home alarms and antibacterial soap because advertisers convince us we're at great risk without them. We buy designer clothing sheets and certain automobiles because they communicate success. We believe that nearly everything we buy will make us happy and successful. Uh, I was a part of a training event two years ago. A lot of people in our church went there. It was a thing called Emotionally Focused Discipleship. And one of the things that we talked about was we looked at how significant moments or experiences we had growing up have shaped us. And one of the things that we learned was that uh, there were different events that happened to us, uh, often as children, and the, and the events impact us significantly, and some even kind of the event itself, right? Like it implicitly carries trauma or pain. But what we also learned was that often what's the most damaging or positive thing about an event in someone's life years later isn't just the what the event was. Often more important is what the meaning is that we make of the event. What meaning did we make of the event about ourselves, about others, about God, about life? And one of the areas they highlighted at the training is our view of money. They said, we often view money the way we do because of messages we received implicitly or explicitly growing up. Uh, one of the speakers at the event talked about um, really struggling with this idea of money. And, uh, and he, he talked about how he was hanging out with a woman he was dating. Be she became his wife. Uh, she was a lawyer and a grown woman. And he was a grown man with a job. And they went to a McDonald's drive-thru. 
And uh, there was this moment where uh, she ordered a number one, a Big Mac combo. And he said, pretty sure you get something off the value menu. Like, go pretty big with a number one, you know? And, uh, and he goes, dude, what was that about? He said, that's part of that's tied to my brokenness and my story. I'm scared to get a number one comp. I'm telling this grown woman with grown <laughs> money uh, what she can and can't buy at McDonald's. And he said he could trace that right back to how his parents dealt with money growing up. Another example of this is a woman named Suze Orsman, a uh, popular financial expert. And um, uh, when she was a little girl, her father's business caught on fire and she saw it with her own eyes. And she remembers him running in and grabbing a metal cast register with her bare hands. And it was pretty hot and his hands were burned. I think part of his face was burned and he ran out. And she said that moment changed her forever. She, she was too little to process it all, but again, a narrative, a message, a teaching, if you will, a, a false gospel, a false narrative about money emerged. And it was, uh, it was this, it was that money is important enough to die for. Money is essentially everything. And she said, from that point on, earning money, lots of money, not only became what drove me professionally, but also became my emotional priority. And so for you, and again, uh, uh, for you, maybe your parents got a divorce and money was a factor. They argued about money. They lost a job or lost a home or, or lost a car. Maybe you experienced someone abandoning your family and taking their money with them. That impacts how you view money now. On the flip side, maybe you had experiences. Maybe you grew up in a family with, with means and you were bought a lot of stuff that you wanted and you experienced the rush, the dopamine high of putting on a, a new jacket or th that you liked, right? If it's a bad jacket, it, it doesn't feel that way, right? Uh, if it's a, you know, um, or you went on a vacation or you, you did stuff that you go, hey, money makes you feel good. Money makes you impressive. Or on the flip side, you didn't get to cop the nice stuff and you rolled in with... You know, like, uh, again, a grown-up man, in my first couple of years of elementary school, I, I had to go to pay less. And for me, that was, that was big. Like, that was, I had a ton of shame. Uh, I remember sh the shack shoes came out later. Uh, and I was like, man, I could have used those shack shoes. Uh, yeah, like the, sh the pay less shoes or whatever. Um, and, and just struggling, going back and forth. I remember uh, I made a big commitment. I don't know if you guys remember these shoes. Uh, they were the, the, the Fila, the, the Jerry Stackhouse Filas. Uh, maybe Carlo remembers these. Um, and I remember I wanted them, man. I was going to get them. And then my mom was like, there's no way you're getting And I told everyone at school I was getting them. I've seen them, right? Like I've seen them at the mall. We're going to go get shoes at the mall. And I like pitch it. My mom's like, nah, man, no, you know? And, uh, and so maybe for you, you go, man, not having stuff makes, made you feel inferior at different points. And now you want to prove to people you're someone. I know people that buy nice uh, clothes for their kids the kids don't want because they didn't have that when they were younger. And you can just see how, again, these messages about money can shape us. Um, could be the messages that advertisers want you to believe, right? That if you don't have X, you'll be, if you have X, you'll be happy and successful. Or if you don't have it, or the message of trauma, if you don't have enough of something, you're unsafe and insecure. One author says this, I thought this was so helpful. He says, surprisingly, both the stingy and the spread thrift are in the grip of materialism and the love of money. Though they appear to be opposites, they share the same belief. Money spent or saved is what makes a person happy. It's just whether you'll make that, that money will make you happy now or later. It's just, it's still trusting in money and material possessions. And so again, Jesus is challenging 
everyone here to view money differently. We've all received messages from different spaces and places and mediums, but, but they're probably not the teaching of Jesus. And so I have three questions I want to look at rooted in the text this morning, the teaching text. And the, the questions are this, what do you treasure? What do you focus on? What do you worship? What do you treasure? What do you focus on? What do you worship? Number one, what do you treasure? Again, Jesus says, Matthew 6, 19 to 21, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does this mean? Uh, before we get into what it means, I think it's important to talk about what it doesn't mean. Um, uh, helpful New Testament scholar John Stott says this. He says, first, uh, what this doesn't mean, there is no ban on possessions in and of themselves. Nowhere does the Bible forbid private property. Second, saving for a rainy day is not forbidden to Christians, or for that matter, a life insurance policy, which is only a kind of saving by self-imposed compulsion. On the contrary, the Bible praises the ant for storing in the summer the food it will need in the winter and declares that believers who make no provision for their family are worse than unbelievers. Third, we are not to despise, but rather to enjoy the good things which our Creator has given us richly to enjoy. So neither having possessions nor making provisions for the future nor enjoying the gifts of a good Creator is included in this ban on storing treasures on earth. So what is Jesus forbidding then? What Jesus forbids here uh, is the selfish accumulation of goods. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, or uh, do not keep storing up, as is literally in Greek what it says. Extravagant and luxurious living, the hard-heartedness which does not feel the colossal need of the world's underprivileged people. So living in such a way like your life's all that matters. So he's forbidding us from a selfish accumulation of goods, which does not feel the colossal need of the world's underprivileged people, the foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of possessions and the materialism which uh, tethers our hearts to the earth. Also, earthly treasures we covet, Jesus reminds us, can also easily be destroyed or stolen. Okay? We forget this, but but again, Jesus, he's not being a jerk here or kind of uh, lecturing us about money, he's inviting us into freedom. To invest everything into something that can be lost so easily is setting yourself up for heartache, right? It's like rooting for the Chargers at the beginning of the year, right? Like it's not a good idea. It always seems good. It's going to fall through. I... um. Uh, uh, two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, um, uh, for about a year and a half, uh, I had been buying uh, some cryptocurrency. Uh, and again, volatile, not going too crazy, uh, putting extra money in there that we had. Um, but over time, a coin I had doubled in value in like three months or something. Um, uh, Eric will remember it. I don't remember the, all the specifics. Um, I just remember every time I opened Coinbase, it was like, bang, right? And it kept going and going and going right and um and I, I was on a trip uh, i was in lake tahoe with my family i struggled to be present on the trip because like how like what's happening what's happening what's happening i, so I started thinking through ways we can come up with more money 
because right now it's just you know it's moving and uh and it was going going and then it was gone may 2021 big crypto collapse you're like it's volatile andy that was gonna happen i know but it was real you just don't know when you're on the ride up it never feels like it's gonna go down definitely should have sold at the time right and that's the reality and then you're like it's volatile and it's different zach kitts is like i'm a financial planner andy we could do something different I do have other stuff that's different, but, um, but, but even that, man, markets are unpredictable. Businesses, uh, whole industries change quickly, and what used to be valuable is no longer valuable, and what wasn't is, and, and on and on it goes. We don't expect stuff to, to wear down or, or to lose it. Uh, I see this with my, my kids right now. Um, they, uh, my oldest son's in middle school now and my youngest son's about to be middle school. And now they're starting to care about their shoes and how their shoes look. And again, they, they pretty much have one to two pair of shoes that they wear regularly. We're not going all in. They want to be like sneakerheads. There's a kid, I'm not going to name his name, but he has an uncle who's a sneakerhead and he has a bunch of shoes he doesn't have and he makes fun of my kid's shoes, uh, which is a bummer. Uh, uh, Calvin's always like, man, he says I have crusty, musty Air Maxes. And, uh, and, uh, and in addition to that, he's, he points out, if you guys have heard about this, he points out uh, the creases in his shoes. And so um, back when I was a kid, high school, man, everyone wore Air Forces, and, uh, and they creased. That's what they did. That's just a part of life. It's like you're wearing a shoe. It, there's a mark. You're wearing a shoe, right? Um, and uh, no, man, these kids, they, they put the – I don't even know what they – whatever. I feel so old telling this story right now. But basically, man, you, you slide in a thing. Carlo could probably explain. You slide in – uh, like this piece of plastic that hurts, makes you walk weird, but it keeps the creases out, right? And what, what they're missing is you're just avoiding, guys, you have white Air Forces on, okay? You're avoiding the inevitable. This isn't going to last forever, okay? But, but again, they're immature. They think things can last forever at whatever it is. And the reality is, is that everything wears down over time, even our bodies, And so Jesus is saying to, to invest your treasure, to value most what is in this earth that so easily is taken or can disappear at the drop of a hat, that's a bad investment. To, to, to invest your heart into that is going to lead to heartbreak. There's no in the way that the kingdom of heaven is. And so what are treasures in heaven? Uh, John Stott says this. He says, Jesus was certainly not teaching a doctrine of merit or a treasury of merits. Like you're like working, you know, you're living a certain way to get treasure. Um, as if we might accumulate by good deeds done on earth a kind of credit account in heaven in which we and others might draw for a grotesque notion uh, that actually contradicts the gospel of grace, which Jesus and the apostles consistently taught. And in any case, Jesus is addressing disciples who have already received the salvation of God. It seems rather to refer to such things as these, this would be treasure in heaven, the development of Christ-like character, since all we can take with us to heaven is ourselves. The increase of faith, hope, and charity, all of which Paul said remain. Growth in the knowledge of Jesus, whom one day we shall see face to face. Our active efforts by prayer and witness to introduce others to Jesus so that they too may inherit eternal life. And the use of our money for gospel causes, which is the only investment whose dividends are everlasting. All these are temporal activities with eternal consequences. All these are temporal activities with eternal consequences. This is what is meant by treasures in heaven. And so going back to this, do we really treasure and invest primarily an earthly treasure? 
or in heavenly eternal treasure. And as humans, we're so prone to invest into the temporary at the expense of the eternal or even the long-lasting. I've walked dozens of couples through the premarital kind of counseling process ready to get married. And uh, for a lot of them early on, you have to go, hey, the wedding is not as important as your marriage. So even if you've got a down payment on a location and your marriage is an, your relationship's a nightmare, like it's okay to lose that $1,000 deposit or whatever and make sure this is right. It's okay to push back the timeline a little bit. Does that make sense? Uh, again, you spend so much time on that. And again, there's nothing wrong, right? Like I'm not, weddings are great. I love a good wedding, okay? Big fan, officiated many, into it, okay? Pro-wedding, Jesus was pro-wedding, into it. Um, that being said, they can get so focused in, I'm talking minute details here, haven't thought for a second about how to do conflict in their marriage. Obsessing over the budget for the wedding, never thought through a budget for their life. See what I'm saying? And, and so we, we do this as people, how much more so in the eternal sense? We vow this stuff that's not going to last. Um, every material possession we have is going to leave us voluntarily. It'll wear out. We'll give it away, whatever, a gift. Uh, involuntary, it gets taken from us or we die, right? You're, again, you're the only thing you're taking to heaven with you. It's a fascinating thing to think about. So number one, what do you treasure? Number two, what do you focus on? What do you focus on? Matthew 6, 22. Uh, it's, and by the way, in this passage, it talks about two sets of eyes. Just like there's two treasures, there's two ways of seeing or focusing. Matthew 6, 22, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So Jesus is teaching here that what we look at, what we focus on, shapes who we become. One guy put it this way. He said, we become what we behold. So the things you give your attention to often, the things you obsess over often, they start to just drive your decision making. And Jesus is teaching here that if we obsess over money and material possessions, it will drive your decision making. Um, that what we look at most becomes the thing we live for, in other words. And so the argument seems to go like this, just as our eye affects our whole body, right? Like what I see impacts what I do with my body, or it should, if my body's working correctly. If I see a threat, I'll move around it. If, there's a, if I'm walking and there's a pothole, I'll move around it. If I'm on my phone and I don't see it, I'm in trouble, right? Um, but, but, but if I can see clearly, it'll adjust my behavior. In the same way, the thing that I, I look at with, I focus on spiritually impacts how I live my life. If I have to have a romantic relationship or I have to have um, money, a certain amount of money, or I have to have a certain job, a certain standing, whatever it is, my life will revolve around those goals. Everyone's dedicated just to what? No one is truly lazy. You're just dedicated to the thing that you really care about. And so Stott says, just as seeing gives light to the body, so a noble and single-minded ambition to serve God and people adds meaning to life and throws light on everything we do. Just as blindness leads to darkness, so a dishonorable and selfish ambition, e.g. to store up treasures for ourselves on earth, plunge, can plunge us into moral darkness. It makes us intolerant, inhuman, ruthless, and deprives life of all ultimate significance. Keep reading verse 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So the light within you is darkness. How deep is is that darkness. 
first time I read that, I was confused by it. And every time I started to see, it means, again, if, if, if we're focusing on the right thing, we'll walk in the right direction. But, but if, if we can't, if it's dark, it's dangerous to walk. You walk at night, you can get messed up. And this is the idea here. People can do and still do awful things for money. The darkness can get deep. I've seen lawsuits in families that tore family members apart. Family over money. Why? Their ambition was money, not God. They were focused on money, not God. I've seen people neglect their families by overworking, leading to the loss of their marriages and the respect of their children. Why? Their ambition was money, not God. That's what they're looking at. That's what they're focusing on. We've seen pharmaceutical corporations flood America with opioids, ruining lives instead of bringing healing. Why? Ambition was money, not God. We've seen men, women, and children sold into slavery in this country and treated like animals. Why? Ambition was money, not God. People will do the wickedest things you have ever conceived when money is their God. And so what do you focus on? What's your ambition? It's not bad to have money. It's not bad to make money. Do you live for it? Do you have to have it? Because if you have to have it, you have to do some stuff to keep it. Number three, what do you worship? Last question, what do you worship? Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve. He doesn't, by the way, he doesn't say no one except for in America. <laughs> it says no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Um, I think we've talked about this before. I think it's a helpful anecdote or idea. Um, but but in the um, in the early church, uh, often when Roman soldiers would get baptized, when they were baptized, they would go underwater, but they would hold their sword above the water, which is to say they weren't truly baptized, for the record, if that's what their heart meant. But what they were saying is, is like, I'm mostly a Christian, except for when I'm murking people, okay? Except for when I, like, what I do with my sword's my business, okay? Um, one scholar says, the American Christian goes underwater and holds up their purse or their wallet. You can have my whole life, Jesus. You're just not touching this. By the way, this isn't a way to, like, get you guys to get, give more money. It's not just about giving. It's about simplicity and uh, freedom. I'm not just... It's not the goal. Give money to others. It's not just the church. My, my point is, is to live in this freedom of, God, you're in charge of my money, not me, which means I don't have to stress about it in the same way that I would if money was my God. I have to appease her. <clears throat> this is a longer quote. I just thought it was really, really helpful. One scholar says this. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus didn't deny that money was a God, that God even had a name mammon jesus affirmed mammon as the sole sole only serious competitor to the triune god there's mammon and there's the trinity jesus understood that the antithesis or contrast between god's way and mammon's way was was as the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history 
He didn't divide the world into left versus right or liberal versus conservative or the envious versus entrepreneurs or Muslim versus Christian. Jesus didn't make mammon just a side temptation for a few the way most Christians do. Typical Christians tend to shrink mammon into one of many small idols. We reduce it as an equal alongside Aphrodite and sexuality. Aphrodite, the god of sex and Roman mythology. Hephaestian technology, Bacchanalian passion, Promethean science, Gaian mysticism, the Leviathan state, and others. For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among many equals. Jesus never spoke of any other god in the way he spoke of mammon. He singled it out as the direct competitor to the god of the universe. He never contrasted the idols of sexuality or knowledge or the earth in such stark opposition to God. Jesus never said you cannot serve sexuality and God or knowledge and God, though that these were idols too. Not wild. And so for all of us as a church family, as a community, we have to be honest. How much do we live for this stuff? What do we really worship? What do we, when the rubber meets the road, is it Jesus or mammon? Jesus is impossible to serve God and mammon because they have opposite agendas. God wants us to reject mammon and to love and trust him, which is the path to peace and happiness. Mammon wants us to deny God and slavishly pursue happiness through wealth. Stingy people are inwardly focused and don't experience joy. Generous people are outwardly focused, giving freely, experiencing joy. Mammon says it can produce peace and happiness, but it fails. God, uh, God promises peace and happiness and always delivers. You guys are familiar with um, uh, John Getty, uh, a guy who I think his company did like 1% of America's GDP in the 60s, uh, one of the years. Uh, Getty Oil, the Getty Museum now. And, uh, and they asked him, how much more money do you need? And he said, just a little more, right? You know, uh, um, you know, more money, more problems. Uh, also, but again, same idea. It, it, there is this reality. We think money solves our problems. Money creates problems too, but it fails. God produces peace and happiness and always delivers. I have sat with people who have way less money than we'll ever have in this room in America, the poorest people in America, and they're happier than we are. I remember one time I was walking um, through a village. I was with Brad, and he just was like, these people are happy in a way <laughs> that the, they're not in the valley, right? Again, you're like, they live in the valley. No, but, but Americans in general, like there's a peace to their day. There's a freedom to their day. There's a relational orientation where they care about others that, that, that we lack. And so if we're worshiping God, um, there should be a freedom that comes that's different than the God of mammon. And so I'll close um, with this idea is, is um, how are we called to live as followers of Jesus? Like, what does that look like? And pretty much everyone kind of agrees it's, it's, it's at least two things. Um, but the first one is, is this. It's, 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 it, again, it's not bad to have a lot of money, okay? But are you content? I know very wealthy people who don't really care about money, and I know poor people who don't care about money. And I know poor people who are obsessed with money, and rich people who are obsessed with money. The issue is heart posture. The freedom comes from the heart posture, not the amount in the account. Can money, is money helpful? Can it help solve problems? Yeah. 
but not the deepest problems that linger, that are in our hearts. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 uh, to 10 says this. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, will we be content with that? Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This desire to get rich is a big deal. And then verse 10, the, the, the most misquoted verse ever, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Do you have to have it? Do you have to keep it? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That people will walk away from Jesus over money. That's what it's saying. It's a big deal. And so can you live a life of contentment? This doesn't mean, by the way, um, that you, you don't, you know, you, you, you're disappointed if your situation changed, but you have a contentment. If this is where I'm at today, that's okay. Can you live with a sense of, um, I'm trusting God to provide something over time, right? So again, if I have to work so much that I neglect my family, it's sinfully working too much, okay? That's how you can tell. If, if, if you have to neglect primary responsibilities of the kingdom to do it, right? Um, if, if you um, can't ever give to God and his purposes because you're saving so much, you're, you're sinfully saving too much. We're spending too much, whatever it is, right? Um, if you have to lie to make the money work, you're sinfully making the money work. Do, do, you, see, do you see what I'm saying? And so, man, it, it, can you be, are you content? Like, I'm not going to sin to change my position, and I'm not going to worship this thing. Versus I'm going to do my best like a farmer. I'm going I'm to work and trust God to provide the rain and the sun and the nutrients and, and what I need. So I'm still playing a part. I'm just not trying to control it. Uh, with contentment. And then, and then secondly, um, can you live a simple life? Do we have to always have the next best thing? Does that make sense? I would challenge you guys uh, when you're out buying stuff. And again, it, you, we can't get legalistic with this. There isn't a clear thing on this. Um, is it sin to have a big house? It's not. I mean, biblically, there's people who had big houses that were favored by God, loved by God, hosted church events at their house, you know, services and stuff in the early church. Um, uh, and, and so, again, the issue isn't do you have the money. It's what do you do with it and what does it do to you? Are you open-handed with it? And do you have to always use as much as possible of it, you know, on yourself? So can you live a simple life? Where, where, like, when you're out shopping, you go, hey, again, I would challenge you guys sometimes. Um, Paul Pham taught me this uh, uh, about food. Um, that there are times when I've been around him, and, uh, and it's like, man, we're at a restaurant. It's like, dude, what are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? Like, we, get, we should get some food. And then Paul's like, guys, we can always order more if we're still hungry. <laughs> I mean, Instagram 7, I'm like, let's do four things. It's four of us here, right? We do a little share. It's always family style if I'm there, right? And, uh, and it's like, yeah, that's true. You know, um, man, delay a purchase and see if you really need it. Or if it was like a weird emotional thing you were trying to work out. Because it doesn't heal it. Whatever that is, it doesn't heal it. Just go, you know what? Is this pressure? Is this messaging? Is this the wounds from my past? Is this me trying to deal with something emotionally? Or do I really want this? Uh, like I need this? I want it. 
Uh, and by the way, you can have some wants too, but but it, but it's 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 not rooted in like healing something or doing something only God should be doing. And so, um, are we okay to live lives of simplicity? Okay. Um. Uh. Yeah. I, I don't want to go too long on this. Anyways. Um. But here's what I want to say in closing: is I do think this is something we have to grapple with consistently. Jesus isn't saying hey, you've got to live a life of poverty. You've got to. That's not what he's saying, but, but, but he is saying, man, are you clear on who you're really worshiping and what you're really living for, what your ambition is about? Are we people who use, money, use people to get money, or do we use money to bless people? Again, how, what we do with it is what matters. So um, last thing I want to say is Jesus himself is the only God worthy of our worship. He's the only God who came for you. He's the only God who gave himself for you. He's the only God who forgives you. He's the only God who redeems you. He's the only one who can actually give you the things your heart longed for, long term. And he did it at great cost to himself.